One thing we know for sure, the worst person we hire every year is likely to stay forever. You have to be ruthless in being utterly picky in the people you're willing to hire. As you know, one bad apple equals a hundred good ones. Welcome to Guild Stories, the podcast where every person has a story and it's the stories that connect us all. I am Justin Rickliffs, founder and CEO of Guild Content. We are so grateful you're here. This podcast is a place where we'll explore the stories of hustlers, dreamers, and doers who are going for it by pursuing meaningful work and living life with purpose. Welcome to Guild Stories. Welcome back to Guild Stories. Today's guest, Greg Graves, probably doesn't need a long intro, especially for those of you folks in the corporate world, civic world, philanthropic world, um, now the author and, and, uh, and book launch world. <laughs> so Greg, we could, we could go a lot of routes to give you some um, introduction here, but I'll just, I'll be quiet and say, thanks so much for being with us, man. It's a pleasure. Justin, it is awesome. It's been a long time since our chief's days together. But uh, I'm looking forward to chatting about Kansas City and, of course, my new book. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And it's, it's a pleasure. There, there's lots of ways I, I want to go. But maybe I'll, I'll start with, for those who don't know what you're up to and maybe don't know what the, uh, the current chapter of your life um, looks like, would love to just, yeah, kind of jump us into the, the things you're, you're passionate about and doing now. And then if you'd also give us the quick background on Burns and & Mac and, and kind of your journey, that would be amazing. Thanks, Justin. Uh, thanks to the success of my fellow employee owners at uh, Burns McDonald, Deanna and I were able to retire early at 58. Um, I spent that's that's been four years. Nice. I was uh, I spent about six months playing, and then I spent the next three years on two incredible personal uh, projects of mine that I'm incredibly passionate about. One is our ranch property that we are still developing near Drexel, Missouri, believe it or not. Love it. And, and the second has been this book. Um, it's no surprise to anyone that economic inequality is a gigantic issue in America mm. today mm. and one that unfortunately is only getting worse. And my book is about the role that I believe employee ownership can play as a major solution to that and in such a positive way where true wealth is earned not given and wealth earned not given is generational wealth and so i'm i'm incredibly passionate about it uh, i will tell you it is way more work to do a book like this than <laughs> anyone could have predicted including me but i loved every moment of it uh, the book is called create amazing turning workers into owners for explosive growth. Uh, I have a world-class publisher in Ben Bella. I have a great agent uh, in John Willick uh, in the New Jersey world. And uh, they have led me on a path that has been exciting, torturous, <laughs> um, good, bad, and, and everything in between. Um, and now we're at the point, of course, of the book has launched. And it came out on April 27th. It's been top one or two percent of all Amazon book sales every week so far. I uh, can't tell how excited I am about that. 
and it's starting to make a difference. It's making a difference in the world of employee ownership, and it's making a, uh, a, a difference in, in, in the Kansas City area because there are so many great employee-owned companies here. And most importantly, I'm already working with two companies who have read the book and have decided to begin the adventure of becoming employee-owned um, in America. The, the firm I worked for was uh, is named Burns & McDonald. It's a well-known firm here in Kansas City. It is an engineering and construction firm with nations worldwide. We were only 650 people in 1986 when we became employee-owned. Mm. Uh, thank God, rescuing ourselves back from Armco Steel Company. Mm. And thanks to what that has done for our model, uh, the company is over 7,000 people today. And Good it's gone from gosh. revenues of about $30 million to, when I retired, revenues of over $3 billion. And so um, I was the CEO and chairman of the board there for 13 years of my career. Uh, uh, an incredible, busy, you know, uh, <laughs> yeah. kind of like writing a book, torturous, exciting uh, time for me, of course, in my life. And it, oh, it allowed me to do, to do so much give back, give back mm. to the Kansas City home that I love so much, give back to some great Kansas City institutions and then some real basic areas of need. Um, and maybe best, it uh, finally got got me to the point where my firm had our own suite at Arrowhead Stadium. Justin, we could go for some pretty <laughs> exciting games. Yeah, no, and, and that's where our paths intersected. And, and, and Greg, I've always, you know, as a, a younger um guy kind of growing up here and watching those who have who have gone before me right even as as I was working my own journey through you know um, the sports marketing landscape and 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 working in the at the Chiefs and had the the great privilege and pleasure of working for the Hunt family and for Mark Donovan and and having just these wonderful relationships like getting to meet folks like Bob Page and and yourself through that relationship with the University of Kansas health system. Um, I always, and again, I'm sure you've heard tons of versions of this story, but there's, there's something really magnetic and contagious about your, not only personality, but the way you and Deanna have, have approached the community, the way you, you, um, have, have you, to use your words, given back. Right. And I, I just, for, for, it would be fa a fascinating journey to wind all the way back to that 1986, scene of 650 people I mean you you uh, you have to because it's the story but you 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 flew through hey it's 30 million to three billion there's a lot of um, torturous to use your word also um, stories in those in those times so as you walked kind of that path of your own and you know kind of back even into 1986 like what are some of those really key pieces that you guys got right? And, and, and then maybe on the flip side, what are some um, throughout that journey, some areas that you look back on and say, man, we didn't know at the time. We obviously would have made the decision if we knew, but those are, those, those were some misses. Like what, what are a couple kind of either leadership or development pieces of your own that you, that you walk through? When uh, Burns and McDonald first became employee owned, I remember exactly my thought was, boy, I better keep my resume current. Wow. 
because wow. uh, nobody knew what employee stock ownership plans were at our firm. Nobody really knew what that meant. Uh, we were reducing our workforce uh, at the time. It was tough times at America and for our firm. And I, I think there were a lot of people at our firm who did the same. Mm. I think there were some who left and they regretted it just so badly of course, with the success that we ended up having. <laughs> it goes back to, it goes back to uh, the very beginning of America. Uh, when, when Thomas Jefferson and the, the, you know, in the room where it happened yep. uh, from ha- from the musical Hamilton. It's a wonderful song. Uh, this, this is the best. They knew their economic theory was that if you could just make people, and of course, we we know that they didn't mean all people then. They meant white men, mm. and and that's of course incredibly too bad in the history of our firm. But it doesn't change the fact that their economic theory was that if you make someone or some family completely and utterly dependent on their own success, they will outwork, they will outcompete, they will outtry their competition and their foreign counterparts off the charts and America would be successful. That economic theory led directly to the Louisiana Purchase. It, dread, it led directly to the uh, Emancipation Proclamation mm. and the big land grabs, the Oklahoma land rush. And it was so successful that when in 1776, the American economy was only 25% of the size of Britain's economy. And less than a hundred years later, um, the American economy was the largest economy in the world. We're not talking about, you know, after after Ford and General Motors and the Texaco companies of the world. We're talking about a, around the time of just past the Civil War. Man. The American economy was the biggest economy in the world, and of course it has been ever since. And it goes back to that theory of we own this place now. We have no one else to be dependent on. We can't look to the government to feed us. We can't look to our neighbors or somebody else. We, we have to make this successful ourselves. And Jefferson knew, and Hamilton knew, and the other guys in the room knew that if they did that, they would outcompete their foreign counterparts, and they did so off the charts. That theory applies directly to the theories that are described in my book about employee ownership and why those firms in America outcompete the economy as a whole, make America more competitive. And best of all, from my viewpoint, uh, Jason, they lead to the uh, creation of economic equality and fairness in our country. Mm. And America's economic inequity has not been this bad since the 1776 version of Europe we all rode away from. Mm. And uh, in America today, the top 1% own 15x the wealth of the entire bottom 50%. Good night. And uh, I, I'm, I'm all about rewarding success, which is why I believe employee ownership is the right way to solve for some of that economic equity. Make them earn it. Earned wealth is generational wealth. But it can be changed in America. It can be done better. Um, Justin, there's a lot to debate mm. here. We can debate 
uh, availability of childcare and good health care. We can debate all day about the minimum wage, which is a dinosaur by any definition in America. Mm. But even those will not lead to true economic gain unless the person creates the ownership mentality. And Justin, you know this exactly from the work that you guys are doing there. Becoming an owner creates a whole new level of commitment when um, you can't count on someone else putting milk on the table, you are putting milk and bread on the table. And that's why companies like yours, Guild Content and others, uh, examples like that in Kansas City are ones that those who are listening to this podcast ought to think about how do I want to hire an owner, not just a firm. Mm, mm. Man, it's yes. Well said. Unbelievable. The, the, the phrase that you said earlier of this, this torturous path yet, yet incredibly rewarding. And, and I do think there's this, in speaking from our own experiences, we've built a team now that, you know, I mentioned on the phone is like, man, we're 15, which, uh, you know, compared to the, the Burns and McDonald's 7,000 is, is peanuts. But for us, it's this like exponential crazy thing now. Right. And I'm going, Oh boy, like, how do you, uh, and, and I, I can't wait to like hear your answer and read the book to, to get the details, but how do you start to, transition that ownership mentality from founder and CEO kind of led, right, culture to a, a, a true adoption of an employee-owned firm? Like, how, how, how does some of that mindset start to, to work its way through the employee base? Yeah, sure. The second last chapter in my book um, is called Simply How, and it has Greg's top 10 ways that an employee-owned firm should be run. And uh, certainly there are some employee-owned firms that are more successful uh, than others. And it, it begins by being all in. You know, we're not, we're not, we're not gonna create an employee stock ownership plan just to have some little tiny extra benefit. Mm. No, we're gonna become employee-owned where the employees are the owners and the owners are the employees. And when we're successful, everybody gets to know it. When we have a problem, everybody gets to know it. And when we are successful, everybody gets to share it, hmm. you know, in the short term and most importantly, in terms of wealth equality in the long term. Um, I, I believe that communication is one of the most important traits an employee stock ownership plan needs to have. And, you know, it's easy to say that we need to communicate more but it's not always easy to do mm. when you're employee owned, you have multiple new excuses, if you will, to communicate to your people. Because guess what? They want to know how we're doing. They own the place. They want to know if we have problems. What, why? Well, they own the place. And so uh, at our place, I would send out a Friday email to every employee every Friday. And I called it Friday news. And I did it 52 times a year for, for 13 years. Someday I'll have to do the math on that, <laughs> uh, Justice, Justin, but I never missed it. I never missed it. And so uh, any excuse to communicate is almost always a good communication. And employee firms always do that. What, what is remarkable to me 
when I became the CEO of Burns McDonald was that we were a really great place to retire from, mm. but we weren't necessarily always a great place to work for. And I, I thought it was an easy leap of faith for me and eventually for our employee owners. But doggone it, if we all own the place, why would we want to be miserable all day for <laughs> a career just to retire rich? Um, I'd rather work at a place that appreciates me, listens to me, does good things in the community, pays a little more fairly, uh, becomes philanthropic, maybe asks for a Saturday morning or two to go clean an, in, an inner city park or, mm. or something like that. But at the same time, recognizes and appreciates on a daily level not just at an end of career level, you know, the hard work that I uh, do. And I've never met a harder working company than Burns and McDonald. And uh, the, pe the people there who worked there needed to understand and at least know how much we loved them for that. Mm. Uh, my uh, second favorite book of all time, business book is called Fish. And it's about the Seattle fish market where they throw fish to customers and they throw fish back and forth to each other. And my God, these people sell fish for a living. That's all they do. And yet the people who work there seem to be about the happiest employees at any mm. place you've ever mm. gone, you know, market or retail or anywhere. And they've created a culture where the people who work there are proud of where they work. And I like to say often, it's okay in America to be proud of where you work. And I think um, maybe a lot of our problems would go away. Yeah, and Greg, and, and for, for us, um, as you say that, uh, I'm really mindful of how quickly culture can get either eroded or um, kind of in a bad way, corporatized, right? And become more lame or lose some of the DNA or the essence of what made someone great and contagious in the first place. And, and I, I think to some level in the, in the pandemic, I think has exposed this. It didn't create this, but I think it's exposed. This is this um, kind of dissatisfaction. Like, like you said, I mean, it's, it's okay to like enjoy your job. It's okay to be proud of where you work and not just, you know, putting in the decades until then you can live, right? There's something to having a, a place of employment or a place of ownership where uh, you come alive and the, the best parts of your vocational pieces of your soul <laughs> can be expressed. Um, how, how have you seen that play out in some of the companies maybe you researched in your book or other, you mentioned some other employees owned companies even in Kansas City. Like how have you seen some of that fullest expression of, of creativity, of production in, in this specific way that companies have been organized. Yeah, Justin, you're exactly right. Uh, in America today, there is a large segment of the population who believes that the man or the boss or who, whoever comes to work every day and tries to figure out how to screw them. Yep. <laughs> and there is this segment of CEOs in America, unfortunately, who come to work every day 
and ask the question, what's the least I can pay my people for them not to quit? Mm. Mm. Well, both those mentalities are just ruinous. They're mm. ruinous to the firm. They're horrible for the worker. And they're terrible, of course, for America. Instead, instead, why not have the attitude of what's the most I can pay my people? What's the best I can treat my people and still have the shareholder be satisfied? And I don't care if, I, if I'm a nickel stock buyer in the smallest mutual fund in America, I don't want to buy firms that aren't good to their people. That's right. Or aren't good, or aren't good for our country or aren't philanthropic. Sometimes that information is hard to garner, but it's certainly out there. My favorite business book of all time, or maybe now it's my second, I guess. <laughs> Before mine, I mean, Fish my, is now number three, and then yeah. whatever you're about to say is number two. Create Amazing. So has my, to be yeah, my new, my new number two is Good to Great by yeah. Jim Collins. Yeah. And of course, he writes the famous chapter about the bus. And he says, you know, it's so important to have the right people on the bus even before you decide where the bus should go. Mm. And then he goes on, you know, a page or two about it's even more important to get the wrong people off the bus. Mm. Mm. So I always try to imagine, and we would always talk about this in our human resources business plans. One thing we know for sure, the worst person we hire every year is likely to stay forever. Wow. <clears throat> and so wow. you, when you're building a new company like yours, when you have a big employee-owned company like mine, you have to be ruthless in being utterly picky in the people you're willing to hire and somehow try to imagine them 10 years down the road. Will they work hard? Will they love our clients? Will they be good family people? Mm. Will they be philanthropic out um, in our community? Justin, I remember the first time that Burns McDonald got the call from Fortune magazine about being named one of the top 100 best places to work in America. And we were so excited and thrilled. We had Boulevard beer trucks pull into the parking <laughs> lot. I handed out six packs for an entire afternoon. The whole company was just off the charts happy. That year, we were trying to hire 500 people. Mm. And after the Fortune magazine article came out, we had 75,000 people apply. You've got to be kidding me. And the truth is, even in America today, where there are worker shortages, right, because of our, our the, the, the economic equity issue we have, where unemployment is paying so close to minimum wage that you, you have all sorts of people who aren't yep. in the workforce yep. anymore or people who are unmotivated in the workforce. And I think that equation is wrong on both ends, but I'm probably in the minority. A lot of people think one should be way higher and the other should be way lower. But and I understand we ought to have an honest debate um, about it. But in, in the end, in the end, if you can make your kind of place the kind of place people want to go and want to work for, then you're going to be able to pick who you believe are the best places. And I, I just think companies like yours and companies like my former firm should be incredibly uh, picky 
because uh, as you know, as other people know, one bad apple equals a hundred good ones. Yeah, I, I have never heard it said that the the worst person we hire today will be with us forever this year. That's uh, it, it's it's a hauntingly true statement, especially as at the levels of which you guys had to hire in in those years. Um, I, I, you, you've struck a chord here with me personally. The the you know. And again, kind of full vulnerability, transparency here. Our team knows this. We we are not at the highest end of payroll here yet. Like we are not outpaying our people in part because we've, you know, bootstrapped and, and held on for dear life as the thing has has had to cash flow itself. Um, and again, there's there's pros, cons, challenges with with the way we've chosen to to build the business. Um, but I do wonder if as you know, I'd, I'd be, I'd, I'm curious, you know, if there are case studies or examples of, um, I believe firmly, and I, you're helping validate this feeling, is if you double down and invest in your people and care for them and um, celebrate them, and of course, at times, challenge and coach that comes with it, um, it, it you actually will outperform the the, the peer group, right? Like you'll, you'll, the, the long tail of revenue and growth and profitability with a mindset built upon, you know, we, we've used this phrase internally of, man, we only hire unicorns. Like we're only going to hire someone. Oh, right. <laughs> and like you, you, you said it better than I did, but, but the, that mindset of, no, this really is all about our people. And we, we actually, we have a, a gentleman who's leaving our team. Um, and it's like, I mean, it's it's like grief for me. I'm like, how in the like, how did I miss it? How did what did I miss? How did we not provide a place where he feels like he wants to spend the next thirty years of his life in? Right? Like, what the hell happened? What was the breakdown? Um, and, and so, I, I think it's it, it's instructive to hear you know some of your examples or case studies of like, no, it, it actually also performs on a financial level. This isn't just a better way to work. It's also a more profitable and, and effective way to work. Yeah, don't don't uh, leave any doubt about it. Uh, the American economy works better when the companies in the American economy are extremely financially successful. And anybody who who wants them to take one on the chin once in a while, well, just don't forget that immediately uh, ends up affecting the worker, mm. the baseline uh, worker. So I never root for that now. You and Kaufman, a lot of people would say, it was the most successful business person in the history of Kansas City. And he wrote in his book, the more I paid my people, the more money I made. Mm. He, he mm. never looked at it as cost. He always looked at it as sharing value, investing in them, making them happy, making their families happy, and they will be even more indebted to me and work even harder for me. And of course, that's proven to work yeah. uh, over and over again. Uh, on the book, I worked with uh, Rutgers University's School of Business, mm. and they do unbelievable research in the American economy and a lot about a lot of it about the worker in general. And their data is overwhelming, overwhelming that the more you do profit sharing, uh, whether it's stock options or employee ownership programs, et cetera, the harder people work, the more they are uh, to suggest better ideas and ways for the company to be more profitable. 
uh, the more they make in the end, and that they they're, they have lower turnover. Mm. And here, mm. here you're, how much of your energy now, Justin, is going into this single turnover? Now imagine a hospital that loses a thousand people a year because yeah. they have ten percent turnover or a firm. And so you're you're spinning HR just trying to keep trying to keep even. That's right. And you're bringing in brand new people versus these experienced people you're leaving. <laughs> With the employee ownership model at Burns and Mac, after a person was there for 10 years, now that's a while, but after a person was there for 10 years, our turnover rate was closer to 0% every year than it was to 1%. Damn. That's and when insane. you can keep your best, yeah, you can keep your best, most experienced people. That's millions of dollars to the bottom line. Yeah, and and Greg, it's it's um, the depth and the trust, and, and it's like any any wonderful relationship. It it takes time. It takes it takes uh, routines. It takes a bunch of at bats, right? Like, and so so that ten year. That's a fascinating stat. That is unbelievable. My. Uh, <clears throat> My grandsons all play for different baseball teams in Kansas City, and there are coaches who sort of make up their mind about kids, and so some kids end up riding the bench from almost the very beginning, and other kids play and play and play and rotate and play and rotate. Oh, which kids are learning baseball the best? That's right. And which kids are gaining the most experience? Those who get up to bat and swing, mm. and those who get up to bat and swing away, Right. We're not looking for people who want to walk, even at the earliest ages and at the earliest points of people's careers. I want people to absolutely swing away, strike out a few times, and, and learn from it. Mm. Mm. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, a, a company that I'm sure in your research you you stumbled across, and, and they're not based in KC, but have a big presence here. But um, Hy-V is an employee-owned group, aren't they? Yeah, grocery stores. It's unbelievable. Mm. Grocery stores have more employee owners in America than any other segment of business. Really? And there are there are whole books that have been written about a few, but High V is a great example. And uh, I know people who've retired from High V and retired early, and they were people who ran meat departments or the donut shop or whatever. Winco Foods is a Florida-based uh, grocery store, and I talk about them in my book a little bit. There, they, they have a famous grocery store clerk there. Her name is Kathy Birch. She was a, she was a clerk. You know, she, she uh, ran shelves and ran the front cash register, et cetera, et cetera. And after 20 years, she had an employee stock ownership plan of over a million dollars and retired. Wow, amazing. Now, she's a great story. But a better story is that at that time, Winco had 400 grocery clerks who had accounts worth over a million dollars. Jeez. And uh, that's what we're going for here. That All that money could have been in the hands of outside shareholders or top paid executives, et cetera, et cetera. But when grocery clerks are retiring in America and aren't worried about where they're going to get their health care, or where their next can of beans is going to come from, mm. and and who are not dependent on the federal government for their retirement, their health care, et cetera, 
now we're achieving something that's obviously very important, but also pretty darn useful yeah, for our right. country. Where you know we're in a we're in the country right now where less than half of Americans have saved a penny for retirement, mm. and eventually that is gonna become well. It's a, Already a big problem, but yep, it's, it's right. going to become a bigger and bigger problem. And it became an even bigger problem uh, in the post-COVID environment. And so uh, I say in the book, and I have said to numerous United States senators and congressmen, employee ownership can be as big a part of the solution as you choose it to be. Mm, mm. And uh, there's, there's 14 million employee owners in America today, and my math says that there could be as many as 100 million uh, if we just create the right economic conditions. Mm, that's awesome. The, 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 the bedrock of their the feel, and I'd be curious to hear your, your take on this, of course, but it feels like at the bedrock, at the heart, at the root of this model is this mindset of abundance, this mindset of creation, right? I mean, even the title of your book, Create Amazing, assumes that individuals have the ability to do that, right? And and as opposed to this kind of heavy-handed scarcity fight for my peace, it, it feel is there something to even Greg Graves, the man, that's like deeper than the kind of the bedrock of this concept that, that resonates with you. Does that make sense? It rings true to me in, in several ways. One, Deanne and I, when we got married, we lived in federally assisted low income housing for the first nine months of our marriage. We weren't close to broke. We were actually officially and legally broke. Wow. Uh, We, we sold one of our two old cars to afford the moving van to get to Kansas city and start this career at this little engineering firm at the time called Burns and McDonald. And with a little talent and a lot of hustle and a whole bunch of really good breaks, uh, you know, Greg became this one of these American dream people. And he looks back at it and can't almost believe the people who, who helped him on the journey, who made mm. it possible, of course, uh, people like Deanna and, and others. And, and when you look back at that, you didn't do anything on your own. And you were the you were the you were so fortunate in so many points in your career. Mm. And so you you don't get to decide whether or not you're going to do everything in your power to give back. You 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 have an absolute duty mm. to do those things. And I'm a person of faith, but not everybody is and this isn't a question of this isn't a question of faith. It's a question of duty. And whether or not, when you're successful, you have a duty to do something more. And and while I know not everyone does, I don't believe that it's ever acceptable not to figure out ways that you're going to give back, especially to the community that made uh, Deanne and I so uh, blessed. And uh, for us, that's big Kansas City. And so we we don't say no very, very often. <laughs> uh, we probably say yes too often. But uh, like I said, uh, the people who made you successful, whether it's at Burns and McDonald or other people in the city, you just you just have to do it. Mm-hmm. And all you have to do is is go down to Operation Breakthrough 
or or a, a, a Hope House or Safe Home in Kansas City and see what some of these institutions are doing. And one of the best is probably Precious Stargell at Community Link, mm. literally taking families that are nearly homeless or are or are homeless, and not only getting them off the street, finding somewhere for them to be, but making sure when they release them back into the world, they have jobs and they have a financial plan, et cetera, et cetera. And so you, you, you can't not help them when you see the good work that they do. And uh, Deanne and I choose to do a little of that every day. That's beautiful. Well said. And I did not know that story of your start. So thank you for sharing. That's powerful. Um, I want to ask one, we've got, I've got 10 minutes or so left with you and I could ask you a, a thousand questions. I'll try to be, I'll try to curate the best three or four. <laughs> um, okay. But the, the question in my mind here re- revolves around employee engagement and, you know, I'm raising my wife and I, Brooke, who you've met, Brooke and I are raising five wonderful young humans. And, and our oldest is going to be a senior in high school next year. And, and at the same time, we're also watching this, our business evolve and grow and change. And there's this like weird misconception about millennials and their work ethic. Right. And it's hilarious to me because I'm actually, you know, we get to watch it in real life. It's not that they don't want to work hard. It's that they want to work somewhere that has purpose. The question is how does this model that you've seen and built and had success also contemplate kind of the next generation of leadership and the next, what, what do the next 10 years look like in terms of employee owned programs? Well, there, there is this misconception in America that the, the millennial group uh, doesn't want to work hard, want right. to work hard. And uh, they, okay. Maybe they didn't go to Europe and defeat Nazi Germany, you know, like the greatest <laughs> generation. Um, but then neither did mine. Right. That was yep. my father. Yep. And so, uh, you know, maybe they didn't come back to poverty and get us out of the Great Depression. Well, neither did mine. That was my father. And so uh, at Burns and Mac, uh, the millennial group, the, the group that follows, they are the most talented, hardest working people I've ever met in my life. Yep. And so I, I just I, I can't disagree str- uh, strongly enough that those people aren't going to create an even better America. When I look at my grandchildren, I I thank God that my success is already in the books because I couldn't Mm. compete Mm. with some of these people today. Here's what I think is one of the factors. The millennial generation, the people people younger than me and even younger than you, uh, Justin, they have high expectations for their employers. Yep, yep. They don't just show up for work and say, yeah, I'll do whatever you tell me and I'll be happy with whatever you pay me. No, they expect their place to be successful. They expect their place to be a great place to work. And they expect their place to understand that careers, working hard, financial success are incredibly important, but they are not life itself. Mm. Life itself is my six-year-old grandson who wants to go fishing with me tonight. Life itself is is uh, a night away with uh, Deanna and time down at our ranch property. Those things are life. That's right. Um, and and for the for those from you know that older than them to expect more than that, I think they're not expecting enough of themselves, mm. if you will, that we don't. You know, 
It's okay for the worker to believe that the boss ought to be awesome at their job too. <laughs> well and one of the things that I just believe that I talk about in the book uh, is sort of a warning to the CEO that they're your boss now. And if you're not terrific at your job, well, you know what they're thinking now. Mm. Mm. M- unbelievable. I- I'm buying, like, a, I've already scribbled it down. It's like, man, I, I should have bought it already, but I'm buying it now <laughs> like instantly. Um, <laughs> la- last two things um, and before we do our final five. The the first is the writing process. Yeah, obviously, our, our company writes words and creates things for a living um, on behalf of the clients we get to tell stories for. The, the writing process itself, what were a couple big ahas? I know you mentioned it was torturous and hard and beautiful, and, but like, are there practical learnings or things that if, if, I think everybody has a book in them, right? So like, what is, what, what were some amazing like insights from your, your own book writing journey? Yeah, Jim Collins told me uh, personally, uh, everyone has a book in them. It's just a question of letting it out. Uh, what he, what he didn't warn me was how hard it was. And, uh, uh, the first thing that was, uh, just an absolute revelation to me was how much you have to read in order to write. Now, maybe if you're writing children's books or you're writing fiction, maybe that's not true. I don't know. But when you're writing nonfiction or specifically a book on business or economics, you better be right. And so that requires tremendous research. And when a subject becomes debatable, you can't just read one answer to that. Mm. You can't read what the far right thinks and not read what the far left thinks, or maybe some people in what in the middle might think. And so I read at least 10 books before I wrote a word. Wow. Uh, and then for me, words have always flown really easy, Justin. And so once I had my outline in place and my data up all up all on my big whiteboard in my office, I was able to write whole chapters in a week. The, the second big biggest revelation to me about writing a book like this is that the editing process might not seem hard. You know, on Word, you have self-edit, and they tell you when you have a word spelled wrong and not. But when you join the world or enter the world of the professional book editor, you better put your humility on notice. That's right. Uh, there would be pages of my book come back from our editor where you could barely find the words under the red. <laughs> Are you sure about this? This disagrees with what you said on page 21. This is not an actual sentence, your dates here appear to be wrong. Uh, you better put your ego on the sideline for sure. And so the, the editing process itself was months long going back and forth. First, first with a technical editor and then someone that just made sure your pages all lined up and that you're all your citing in the back of the book is correct. And these people are very, very good at what they do. And uh, I, I sort of thought they would just do it and it would, they would come back to me written. And that's just not how the process works. Um, some of the other parts have been sort of exactly what I expected. 
sales and marketing is something that I've always loved. And that's actually been a mm. fun part of the mm. adventure. Um, podcasting and being interviewed for local news and now at least for one uh, national magazine, Forbes magazine, uh, about the book has been, uh, I've, re- I've been taken back by all the interest, but as you might guess, I'm incredibly excited by it too. Oh, that's well said. Um, last question. July 1st is a big date. This this show will air a, a, a week or so before that. So tell us about July 1st. Awesome. So on July 1st, come join me at Burns and McDonald's World Headquarters building, 9400 Ward Parkway. I was uh, received maybe the honor of a lifetime when Burns and McDonald named uh, their big uh uh, world-facing auditorium after me. It is now the Greg Graves Auditorium. I don't cry too often, but I certainly cried that day. And they will host my book launch and signing party there on Thursday, July 1st, from 5 o'clock until 6.30. I am told that I will spend my entire time signing books, which will be great fun, Uh, Deanna and the publisher will be manning a table for anyone who wants to, uh, who doesn't have a book yet or wants to come by and buy a book and then get it signed or come by and buy a couple thousand books and get it signed. Um, All proceeds go to the Greater Kansas City Community Foundation. It's awesome. It's awesome. We'll link to all that show notes. And and yeah, man, the fact that (laughs) (laughs) you have an auditorium named after you, it's amazing. That's so awesome. and Justin, uh, there'll be free beer. Deal. In who, well, who's, who possibly could say no to that? That is the definition of amazing, what you just described. <laughs> well, it also it also destroys the entire economics of writing a book. <laughs> writing a book. When Amazon sells my book for $25, they keep 13 Why wouldn't they? So you don't become an author to make money unless you become Jim Collins or write fiction or something like that. It's uh, no way to make a living. Someone already told me that um, writing books is a great career if your parents can afford it. (laughs) That's awesome. Oh my gosh, Greg, what a wonderful conversation. Um, as we do each show, you've been, you've been, uh, loosely prepped here, not, not, um, deeply prepped, but you've been loosely prepped here with our five, uh, questions we end each show. So number one, um, what is the last book that you read or listened to? And of course, everyone also needs to go buy Create Amazing. The last book that I listened to was Create Amazing. And that's because it is now out on audiobooks. And they, uh, they asked me to read the book and immediately decided they would go hire a professional person to, uh, to read it. And so uh, I'm sticking with that one. Nice. I love it. I'm, an, I'm a big Audible guy. So I'll, I'll, instead of probably buying the physical copy, I'll, I'll pop it into my AirPods on runs and workouts and stuff. Um, amazing. So number two is what, you know, I, on the, the fishing weekends or the low-key retreat, uh, or, or uh, ranch weekends. What's your go-to T-shirt? Oh, I have a T-shirt that I just love uh, that I I wear when I'm down there, and it's KC with a circle around it, and it says "Love Big KC." And uh, the Chamber of Commerce gave me that because I termed the phrase "Big KC" for our town 
and uh, they gave me the shirt as a gift when I retired as the chairman of the Chamber of Commerce. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. It doesn't fit quite as well as it did then, <laughs> but I'm sticking with it. It's <laughs> amazing. Uh, retirement, man. You get to be a little freer. Um, what is your, if you were not afraid, is there one thing you would do? Well, uh, there's a thing I would have done. Uh, when I graduated high school, I received an offer to co go and try out for the Philadelphia Phillies. And Whoa. instead of going there, I tried out in a local ballpark, made it through day one and didn't make it through uh, day two. And, uh, you know, it's one of those things where you were just afraid to try. Mm. Uh, currently, I live in a world where uh, we were, we've all been so afraid for the last year and a half yeah, yeah. that I am absolutely positively afraid of nothing. It's amazing. Well said. You want to fly out of an airplane with me, Justin? I'll do it. I'm in. Let's go. You what are you doing tonight? <laughs> if Bezos invites us or uh, to get on, you know, one of his spaceships, let's go. He might invite you, but if he if he does, I'm happy to tag along. <laughs> let's do it. Let's do That's it. That's awesome. Um, what's your favorite place on Earth? I, I imagine I know the answer to this. Yeah, unfortunately. Well, I'll give you two. Uh, I would spend every moment of every day now down at our ranch property we call La Dolce Vita, which is an Italian toast to the sweet life, uh, and on the lake that I named after Deanna without without telling her on the Corps of Engineer permit, Lake it's Deanna. Awesome. Awesome. And when I'm there, I'm happy. But we have a place in the world that we like to go. We've been there five times, I think, and that's to the Bordeaux region of France. Mm. And if you ever want to go back 2,000 years, uh, they're growing grapes there that the mm. Romans developed. Mm. And uh, it's, it, it is the style of wine that Deanne and I just absolutely uh, cherished. The pace is very slow, and the wine is very good. Well said. I, I, that's amazing. Um, last question, my friend. And I've already kept you longer than I intended, and I apologize. Last question is, uh, when it's all said and done, what does Greg Graves want to be remembered for? Oh, that's a, that's an easy one, Justin. The older you get, the more perspective you have. I want to be known as a great-grandpa. Mm. And uh, it's the title that I cherish. And um, with this lake I built, I think I'm going to have a good chance of achieving <laughs> I think so that. We, we leave no doubt in our children's mind that we love them, but we love our grandchildren much more. <laughs> and uh, they come without fear, you know? You can just purely love them mm. and not be afraid mm. for their safety or what they might be up to on a daily basis. And uh, we are on six grandchildren headed for seven, and I'll take as many as they want to give us. That's so well said. Greg, you have uh, quite literally created amazing, um, and, and you've done that again even in this 52-minute segment that we've got to be together. So I'm um, grateful for you, your leadership, your generosity, your perspective, um, and you, you've, again, yeah, quite literally created amazing. And so we're, we're all indebted to you, my friend. Thank you so much. Justin, best of luck uh, with your firm and uh, hope to see you on July 1st. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Thanks for all the work you're doing, Greg. It's amazing. Take care. Bye.
As always, thank you for listening. Your attention is super valuable, so thank you for giving it to us. If you're a fan of the show, please go rate and review us wherever you're listening to this. I would really appreciate it. Until next time, when we get to share another great conversation with you, have a great week and let your life tell a meaningful story.